Lesson One: Basic Hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. The Jazz Session is also available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. This week's guest is bassist Avery Sharp. From his new album Autumn Moonlight, here is Boston Baked Beans. My guest is bassist Avery Sharp. His new album is called Autumn Moonlight, and it is my pleasure to welcome Avery Sharp to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, it's my pleasure. It's a, a really, really fine album, and uh, I want to spend a little time talking about the past and the present. But uh, let's let's stick with the album for the moment. Can you talk about uh, the two wonderful musicians uh, who are on this album with you, and uh, why you chose these two particular players? Well. On piano, I have uh, a Najee Allen Gums, and um, on drums, I have Winard Harper. And actually, I formed this trio back in 2004, 2005. And, you know, Najee, I've known for uh, years, and he, of course, is a, a great composer and writer and band leader in, in his own right. Uh, you know, he's recorded with everybody from uh, Betty Carter to, um, you know, Angela Bofield. So I, I've, when I, you know, left McCoy, Tyner, I 
you know, left his trio, I wanted to form my own trio, and the first person I kind of thought about was Anaji, because he has a, a vast array of, of, of experience, and that's kind of, you know, what I was looking for. And the same with Winard. Actually, Winard Harper, I've known Winard for years, but we never got a chance to play together until um, uh, Chico Freeman put us together. Um, Chico said, you know, you and Winard would hook up really great, and uh, he put us together for a couple of performances with um, Chico and his father, Vaughn Freeman. You know, immediately uh, Winard and I hooked up, and so when I was thinking about a trio, I thought about those two cats, and um, I often tell audiences that uh, on stage you're looking at over 100 years' worth of, uh, of experience of music at this, at this level. It really makes it great, because any direction I want to go in, you know, those cats can go, and um, it's just, they're, they're, it's, re- it's really a lot of fun. So that's kind of how the, uh, the trio kind of came about, and those are the two players, you know, it's, which is really, it's, it's, uh, it's an all-star group, really. Yeah, that's exactly right. And in fact, you've you've anticipated my next question, which is uh, a lot of times you can get three incredible players together on an album, and sometimes the uh, you know the whole is not as great as the sum of its parts. But in this, it really sounds like a band. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of the chemistry between the three of you and and what it was like during this session? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, you know, um, the the, re- the uh, CD was released in uh, April of this year. And uh, we we did a performance in um, Maryland at the in Laurel, Maryland at the uh, Montpelier uh, Cultural Center, and just switched it right out of D.C. And I remember my wife commenting commenting that after the performance, she said, "You know, this trio has really kind of gone to another level." And what has happened? Uh, we've been performing together enough. You start, you know, you start to know the players, or you know, you start to know each other. You know, not, not only personality-wise, off stage, which I knew them as well, but when you're hanging out with each other and playing together more, that that comes out more. And just playing together, um, I try to leave it. You know, because even though I'm the leader of the group, it's it's an, it's an all-star group. So I I take what they say and their input, um, you know, very seriously, and I ask for it as well, because they, there is a vast uh, amount of experience, and I feel that um, when you do that. You know, you should use people. You know, I mean, there's extremely talented people, so you should use them as you know, and let them express themselves to uh, to their fullest. And that's basically what kind of you know, kind of what I let happen. You know, with the trio. I mean, for instance, with this last CD, um, you know, I do six of my originals, and then I did two of uh, Najee's tunes, and uh, I did uh, a tune by Woody Shaw. I did sort of a jazz makeover of uh, James Taylor's uh, Fire and Rain. So, you know, the chemistry is, the more we play, I think Major Holly, uh, great bassist, said it best. You know, this is an applied art. The more you do it, uh, the better you get. So the more we play as a trio, the you know, the better it gets. I mean, um, I used to talk to, you know, McCoy Tyner about that. Um, you know, when he was playing with, you know, John Coltrane, you had Miles Davis. Those groups were together for, and played together a lot. You kind of get kind of builds into a whole nother entity, you know, a whole nother energy. You know, you're separate individuals, but then when you come together, it creates almost, you know, it's like multiplied, uh, not by three times, but maybe like nine times. And that's kind of the thing that I really learned, and, you know, from playing with McCoy for so long, you know, with McCoy for, you know, like 20 years, and um, he and I had kind of really formed a, um, 
you know, musical bond that, you know, as McCoy used to say, I, I would, you know, he would exhale and I would inhale. You know, it's just, you just know the person that much. And, and um, that's kind of what's happening with, with, uh, with the trio right now, which is how you really, you know, that's the whole purpose. At least I feel that's, that's one of the purposes of, of putting together a group and, um, and this music that we call jazz. That's how it was formed and that's how it grew. And I'm just trying to keep it, keep that continuation going. And, and I have, like I said, just a vast amount of experience with this, with this group. And so is playing primarily original music on this new album, Autumn Moonlight, is, is that part of that whole equation? Does that help that, that trio feeling come about? Yeah, because, I mean, they've been playing, you know, my music long enough. They pretty much know the interpretation. They kind of know, they kind of know where I'm going. And I, like I said, I leave it open enough where they can, you know, put themselves into it. And they, you know, they play the music better than what I really intended. Let me put it that way. You know, you, you might have one intent, and then when you let people put in what they're going to put in, their their um, you know their their energy, then it, it, it builds, it makes it even better than what than what you originally conceived. And with these players, I, I can do that. definitely want to come back and, and talk more about the present day, but I hope we can just maybe fill in a, a few uh, gaps in the past and let folks know uh, you know, who you are and some of the, the amazing work that you've done. And if we could just for a moment, can we kind of go all the way back to Georgia and maybe just talk for a minute about uh, your mother's impact on your music and uh, kind of those, those earliest influences uh, on you as a player? Well, my mother is my first influence in terms of music. Uh, you know, I was raised in the um, uh, Church of God in Christ or the Pentecostal Church or Sanctified Church or Holy Roller Church, whatever you want to want to call it, and uh, this was back in uh, Georgia. Most of my memories are from when, you know a childhood when I was in, in in the 60s, in the 1960s, and of course you know during that time um, most of the South was uh, you know segregated. And so I lived in um, I was born in Valdosta, but my father was in the um, service uh, Air Force, and we moved to Guam for a couple of years and came back to Georgia when we lived in Savannah for seven years and that's where I really remember a lot of the uh, church services especially in the black community at that time a lot of the churches were what we call storefront churches or gentlemen might um, uh, form a church you know from an abandoned 
that something that might have been a, at one time a store or you know whatever. And you know he may have a very small congregation, and so my mother played for a lot of those services. And, and I remember going uh, to those. I mean, I was I'm number six of eight kids, and at the time there were, you know, I was I was the baby at the time, and I went everywhere with my mother, and I went to a lot of revivals and a lot of services. So I heard a lot of the rhythms for people who are you know familiar with the um, Pentecostal Church or Church of God in Christ. Uh, you know, most people think of black folks; they think of you know Baptists, but we're, we get down, you know, we, uh, you know, speak in tongue and uh, get happy, and, and so it's, it's, it's a little different experience, <laughs> to, say, to say the least. And so those, those are my first memories of, of music and, um, you know, how, how that affected me. And then, you know, my father, uh, we were in Plattsburgh, New York for a couple of years, and my father retired in the mid-60s because um, he was 39 years old at the time, had seven kids, and they wanted to send him back to they wanted to send him to Vietnam, and he'd already fought two wars, World War II in Korea, and he said, no, nah, I think uh, that's enough, and he didn't want to go back to Georgia in the mid-60s, so we wound up in Massachusetts. You know, that's where I started playing uh, electric bass, you know, in high school. And as I always tell people, I wish I could give some really heavy esoteric reason why I started playing electric, but like many adolescents, I was interested in girls that thought girls liked uh, bass players. <laughs> so... Um, but then that, you know, and then after I got into bass, then I just kind of really, I really got into it. And, you know, the, the, the real, the real uh, sort of a different sort of dynamic that was happening in my family. My mother was in the church, and in the church of God and Christ, you have to do something. You know, you have to sing in the choir or be on the usher board. And so I decided to start playing bass because there was no bass player. And actually, you know, for those who, who know black music, there's, you know, a lot of what we call two five changes in, in jazz are there in the blues and also in in, uh, in gospel music at that time. I'm not, I'm not talking about the contemporary stuff that's happening more now. And um, so that's how I started, you know, playing electric bass. But the, the, there's a different dynamic that's happening in my household. My father was not in the church, so um, he brought in the more um, secular music. You know, in in the church that I was raised in, you. Not supposed to listen to the uh, quote unquote devil's music, so me playing jazz or anything else would have been considered to devil's music. And my mother was listening, you know, to Mahalia Jackson and Shirley Caesar and um, uh, James Cleveland, you know, those kind of people. And my father would bring in, um, you know, he, he loved, you know, Count Basie, Duke Ellington. He even loved the stuff that my you know, older brothers and sisters were listening to, which would have been, you know, soul music, we called it at the time. I guess they called it rhythm and blues and, you know, the Motown stuff. So I had a, I had a real sort of a different mixture of music happening, you know, in my family growing up. You know, after high school, I went to college and uh, I went to University of Massachusetts, and then I started hearing about people like Max Roach and Archie Shepp and Reggie Workman, and just so happened that Archie Shepp and Max Roach were professors at uh, the University of Massachusetts, and Reggie Workman, great, great bassist, uh, used to come up a couple days a week uh, from New York, and uh, so my first bass, acoustic bass lessons were with uh, with with Reggie and uh, Max Roach and Archie Shep. Those kind of people started taking a liking to me. And as a matter of fact, uh, I used to do more regional performances with uh, with with, uh, with Archie. And he's the first guy to take me to uh, Europe in uh, 1979. And uh, people like Art Blakey started hearing about me. And then of course McCoy started hearing about me. And I guess as they say, the rest is history. 
Well, there's some more history, though, that's that's in there, because you actually went to UMass to study economics, right? Not to Exactly, my undergraduate degree. You, you did your homework. That's great. <laughs> yes, my undergraduate degree was actually in, in, in economics. And, well, even go back even further, my freshman year, I actually was a physical education major my first semester. For some other reason, I thought I wanted to be a gym teacher, because uh, that's all I really loved was uh, sports and music, and that's all I did when I was in, uh, in high school. After I was a phys ed major and had to take all those um, biology and zoology courses, which I was good at, but I just couldn't, didn't like, and I figured, well, I might as well be a doctor if I'm going to take all this, and then I um, uh, was more interested in uh, business and, uh, and economics, even though I was still playing, doing a lot of playing, and by the time I really decided on my uh, major, I had already done two years and just decided to do um, finish out my undergraduate degree in uh, economics, and I did music as a minor which actually kind of worked out pretty good because as, as a minor, I could take anything I wanted to and they didn't bother me. You know, there were certain electives I had, to, I mean, certain uh, requirements I had to take, but they weren't as stringent as the um, music major. But everyone thought I was a music major because of all the playing that I did. Can you uh, talk a little bit about uh, your first meetings with, with Reggie Workman and uh, and also taking up, you know, the upright bass uh, and the impact that Reggie had on you? You just had an incredible impact on me because I had never seen anybody play acoustic bass at that level. So for me to see him play at that level was just, just blew my mind. And I couldn't play acoustic bass at that time. I was playing electric bass, and, and Reggie saw me play electric bass, and he was like, wow, man, you really got that under your hands for playing such a short time. And when I started taking lessons with him, he said, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not crazy about electric, but that's of your generation. He said, it, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't stop playing it, but I would concentrate most of my time on upright bass, which I did. And one thing that he really told me that really stuck in my head, uh, he said, you're going to want to quit, <laughs> but don't quit. <laughs> and then once I started playing acoustic bass and my hands started bleeding in blisters, I was like, oh, this is what he's talking about. <laughs> and so, you know, I, sometimes I would be walking around campus almost in tears and, you know, hands, you know, you're getting your calluses and they're getting um, scraped off and they're, they're bleeding and pus and everything and, I'm thinking, uh, I remember thinking, I said, nobody's going to hire me to play this silly thing. Why, why don't I just play electric and give it up? And I just remember, you know, Reggie's voice always just saying, don't give it up. So my first year of, of, of actually playing acoustic bass um, um, was, you know, I was taught by Reggie Workman. And a lot of things that he taught me didn't really sink in until two or three years later because I was just, you know, at a very fundamental level. So, I mean, that, that had, he had, you know, he had a profound effect in terms of uh, me. My approach, as a matter of fact, it was funny because the first couple of years that I was playing, older guys who you know who knew Reggie and other bass players, they would, when they would see me play, they'd say, "Wow, you sound like Reggie Workman." I said, "Well, you know, he was my my first teacher." You know, it's funny because every time I see him, you know, I always thank him. He says, "No," he says, "You," he says, "I, I handed you the ball and you just ran out of the stadium. You just went for it." So you know, I, I just can't say enough about the idea, the impact that that he um, that he had on me.
Now, we will get out of college here in one second, but there's one other person I wanted to ask you about. When I was at the uh, Tanglewood Jazz Fest last year, I saw a performance by uh, Kate McGarry, and in the audience was uh, Horace Clarence Boyer, and uh, she was a student of his and talked about the the really incredible impact he'd had on her life. And I know he's someone uh, that you look oh, up to as well. Without without a doubt. He actually he had... I would say he was the one that kind of really showed me that I could actually do music. In other words, he would say that, you know, I had all this raw talent that was just all over the place, and he really kind of helped me focus. And as you know, it's funny, I, I was, was talking to someone the other day, and I said, you know, he's really um, taught me how to listen more than anything else. Because regardless of what it is as musicians that we do, you know, whether you whether a person can read or whether or not they can't read, even even people, you know, people who play, you know, classical music and all other types of music, which is, you know, from uh, primarily written, five percent of it is is actually reading. Ninety five percent of it is actually listening and interpretation. So he really helped me focus on that, and it's funny because you know, um, Doctor Boy is a uh, a gospel singer, and he's actually from Florida. To show you how small, you know, sometimes sometimes these small towns are. When I first met him. He was looking for an electric bass player, which is all I played at the time, to perform with the um, Voices of New Africa House, which was a black gospel choir that was formed at the uh, University of Massachusetts. Actually, it was originally formed by, by Max Roach, and then uh, Horace Boyer uh, took it over. So they were getting ready for a, a concert, and actually Reggie had told him about me. So he came to my dorm and uh, transcribed a, a couple of bass lines for uh, a few of the tunes, and he said, well, I really need to rehearse. And I said, well, I'm going to be down in Springfield, uh, Massachusetts, this weekend, and I'll be at my mother's. So he said, well, I can come by there, and we can, does your mother have a piano? I said, oh, yeah, of course, she's a piano player. She has a, she has a piano there. And he came by, and I told my mother that this guy, um, you know, Dr. Boyer, Dr. Horst Boyer, is coming by. And she goes, Boyer? I wonder if it's one of the Boyer brothers. And she goes to her record collection and pulls out an album with him on. I said, yeah, that's the guy. He's just a little younger there. She goes... I used to go listen to them you know, when they would come through town, come through the church, because we lived across the street from the church, and she said, when I was pregnant with you, I couldn't go to their performance that night when they were at the church, and I had to listen to them from our porch. So I was like, wow, this is deep, you know. So I heard him in the womb, I guess, per, per se, you know. <laughs> and then years later, he's one of my, you know, one of my professors. Wow. But he's one of the foremost, I mean, you know, he was... Um, you know, gospel singer and one of the foremost foremost authorities on gospel music. Now, you mentioned uh, your time with Archie Shepp, and another story about you that uh, that I've heard, and uh, if it's true, I love, is that when you were first starting a gig with, with Archie, you were working for an insurance company, and so you were using an alias when you were uh, on the road, so to speak, so that your boss wouldn't find out. Uh, is that First of all, is that story true? And uh, and if it is true, do you remember what the alias was? Good Lord, you, you just... Homework, I'm you, digging man? it up, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> that, this is my job. Actually, that that is that is very true. I I was I was when I first got out of school, I had my well, I had my in 1976. I it was bicentennial year. I graduated from college, got married, and had my child all in the same year. And uh, went to work. I was still playing music, and and actually we went back to did a year of uh, graduate school while I was working uh, for the insurance company. I was an insurance claims adjuster. And uh, the first tour that I ever did with, was with Archie Shepp, European tour. And I was gone for a couple of weeks, and I just told him, you know, I'm a company man, and um, 
for my MBA, you know, because I had my, under, my, my economics degree, and I just told them I did, just did music as a hobby because I just didn't really want them to, um, I could lower how I put it, I just didn't really want them in my business because <laughs> <laughs> it was just a whole other, you know, life. You know, I was you know, becoming a jazz musician and playing, and it was just a whole other life. So after we came back from that tour, Archie decided to, to take me back to Europe. with a, uh, That was with the um, Attica Blues Big Band, sort of revisited. About thirty musicians, there was a number of us on the um, on the tour. A number of young people and a number of, of, of you know, of course, seasoned veterans. And so I did the tour, and I really didn't want the, my insurance. I'll just say the name. I used to work for Aetna, Life and Casualty, and I really didn't want them to know that I was, you know, that this was another life that I had. So I can't remember the, the uh, A-list I use. I probably have an article because they wrote an article with this in the Springfield paper about it. Charles Greenlee, you know, famous trombone player, used to work with Archie, was working for the Mayor of uh, Cultural Affairs down in Springfield, and I remember telling Art, uh, Charles that uh, I don't want my real name, you know, used in the newspaper, and I can't remember what name I used. I totally, I really forgot. Now, at one point, uh, some pretty interesting phone calls started coming into the office, and uh, you kind of ended up making a decision. Can you describe uh, describe that? Well, what happened was, the second time I went to uh, Europe with Archie was was probably about two months later. And I had... My, my oldest boy was just born on December 22nd. And I thought we were going to be leaving for um, Europe like on January like the 2nd or something like that. And Archie said, well, there's a slight possibility we might leave before. And I, I didn't might not, and the, by the fifth week, you know, I was already, 
you know, uh, AWOL for my job, and I and I hadn't seen my I only seen my son, you know, uh, three days after he was born, and I was ready to go home, so I uh, canceled on the recording date and um, and went home and faced the music and job kind of gave me a choice between playing music and uh, doing insurance. And once they, once it was put to me like that, it, it was a very easy choice because you know at the time I was equivocating a little bit because I just had my second child, you know, had a mortgage and car payment. And but once they put it to me like that, you got to choose between music and, and insurance. I said, well, you know, I'm glad you articulated like that because you have my two week notice now. That's easy. Thank you. And um, I was gone. How did you end up getting the audition for McCoy? Well, you know, a lot of things were happening all at, at the same time. After I got back from Europe, McCoy and Art Blakey had the same um, booking agent. And so, as a matter of fact, the day that I got back from Europe, back to Massachusetts, McCoy was playing at Amherst College. And McCoy always reminds me, the first time he heard my name was from Charles Greenlee. Charles went to the concert. You know, somebody might mention uh, that you know, there's some talented kid coming up, you know, like a big fish in a little pond. And, you know, he hopes that I, you know, he gets, uh, that McCoy gets a chance to hear me someday. And I didn't think too much about it, and so I called um, Jack uh, Whittemore, who was, like I said, the, the agent for McCoy and um, Nard Blakey. And I heard that Charles Frambro had left McCoy, so I called Jack Whittemore and said, uh, I heard McCoy's bass player left. Can you tell McCoy to give me a call? He's like, well, wait a minute, you're playing with art. I was like, well, just tell him to give me a call anyway. I just want to talk to him. McCoy called me while I, while I was playing with Art. Did an audition and I did a gig with him. Well, actually, what had happened was I was supposed, you know, I talked to, to McCoy and I said, "Well, look, I'm really supposed to be with Art, but we'll, you know, we'll see what happens." And then I was performing with Art Blakey at uh, Lulu White's. For those of you old enough to remember, I told Art, you know, well, I'm going to go with you, but I need a month to uh, clear up my um, business with my job, you know, my, my insurance job, and so. The last night of the performance, Art says, okay, we're getting ready to go to Cincinnati on Wednesday, or something like that, Cleveland or something. I said, Art, I told you I needed a month before I can really go on the road. And he just 
you know, are just stop listening to me and start just, you know, going off a little bit. And while he's doing that, I get, uh, someone says, there's a phone call for you, Avery. You know, this is after the gig at Lulu White's, and it's McCoy. <laughs> he said, I've been trying to reach you for a while, and blah, blah, blah. Can you come down tomorrow and do an audition rehearsal? I said, well, I think so at this point, because Art is not, you know, is not really uh, listening to what, you know, what I'm saying at this point. So I did the audition and uh, um, performance that following weekend. After the performance, we did two nights. I think it was in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It was, might have been at the uh, University of uh, Michigan. And after the performance, you know, McCoy said, you know, I got a good feeling about you. I feel we've been, you know, put together for a reason. And 20 years later, we're performing together. Avery, what's the what's the effect on you of of staying in a band for that long? I mean, for for 20 years, um, you know, with McCoy. It has. There have to be some impacts, you know, on you of just re- kind of having, first of all, a steady gig, but second of all, you know, remaining in a, a kind of consistent musical environment for so long. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, some of the the effects on you or you as a player? Well, well, as a player, I mean, when you're playing with, some, I mean, the only reason why I would stay with somebody that long, I used to tell people, you know, because they know I I do a lot of projects at that time and and did, you know, and did a lot of band leader projects and did a lot of different writing projects, and they're like, well. I used to tell them, well, if I'm not doing my own band, the, you know, the best thing is the next best thing, of course, is you know, is playing with McCoy. I mean, you can't you know, can't get any better than that. You know, it, it's funny. But, I mean, I was with McCoy for so long that people thought that we were related. They thought I was his nephew from Philly or something. <laughs> I, I, actually, a few famous musicians had come up to me. As, as a matter of fact, it was funny. Uh, a couple of years ago, I, I saw Ron Carter at Lincoln Center, and uh, I said, "Yeah, you know, you see Ron, blah blah blah." He said, "So how, how's Philly?" Now, I've known Ron for, what, 25, 30 years. I said, Ron, I'm not from Philly. You know how that, that's that been going around for so long that he looks at me like, I'm lying? <laughs> He's like, oh, yes, you are. I'm like, no, I'm not, man. Anyway, you know, playing with somebody like McCoy is, is, has a profound effect in terms of just the intensity. I've never seen anybody, you know, I've never played with anybody who's as consistent as McCoy. Hopefully now I, I, I have that same sort of uh, intensity and, um, uh, you know, consistency. You said at the beginning of this interview that uh, when you left McCoy's band, you wanted to form your own trio. And, you know, I think a reasonable person wouldn't be surprised if you never wanted to play in a piano trio again, or if you just said, listen, I've, I did the thing with McCoy, and now I'm going to strike out in some completely other direction. And instead, you've now... You, I mean, you formed a piano trio. You've obviously done a lot of other things, large group writing and orchestral writing and uh, writing with horns and that whole thing. But on this album, for example, it's a piano trio. And I just wanted to ask you about that. Why Why this format uh, after so many years in probably the highest profile piano trio on the face of the earth? For that reason, exactly. I mean, the great thing about McCoy, you know, sometimes you're in a, in a piano trio and the bass player might get eight bars of solo all night or the drummers might get, you know, trade fours. And the rest of you are just going to hear piano. With with McCoy, he gave me a lot of space, a great amount of space, and um, there's a lot of and, and that kind of spoiled me. I, I I got really used to that 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 space and that that being able to express myself. And 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 a lot of times there's a lot of nuances that go on, you know, in the rhythm section that people kind of miss, you know, when there's so-called frontline uh, instruments, and you can hear all that when there's just a, a trio and. and of course, somebody that plays like McCoy is, you know, it's just it's just incredible. So I kind of like that those nuances that go on, you know, in the rhythm section. I really I really love that the interplay, and that's that's you know that's kind of the thing that 
you know, I've really pushed for, and that's what has kind of risen from the, uh, the trio. Now, with this last CD, and actually my last two CDs, right, actually the first recordings of my own that I didn't play electric bass on, first, and second, with this last trio record, conceptually-wise, I really wanted it to be more of like, almost like a piano trio, rather than, you know, my, my other records, you know, I, I'm definitely, the conception, the concept is a little different, you know, I'm playing electric and acoustic bass, I'm playing the melodies, I'm soloing, you know, on all the tunes. On this one, I just said, you know, I'm just going to kind of make it more of a, a group effort. And um, so, you know, I'm not playing all the melodies. I'm, you know, I'm more supportive, um, you know. And, uh, of course, you know, Najee Allen Gum's a great, you know, pianist, so I, I just let just let people grow. And that, and that was more the, the approach that I, that I kind of took at, uh, on this one. Well, the new album from uh, Avery Sharp is called Autumn Moonlight. It's on his uh, own record label. It is absolutely uh, worth checking out. And, uh, Avery, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I really thank you for uh, taking the time uh, to talk about your life and about this new album. Uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. That's bassist Avery Sharp from his album Autumn Moonlight. You've been listening to The Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of The Jazz Session is also available for free at TheJazzSession.com and in iTunes. The Jazz Session has an email mailing list, which is a great way to win free music. You can sign up at thejazzsession.com, and if you're on Facebook, there's a group for The Jazz Session, and I give away music there, too. The theme music for this show is by the Respect Sextet online at respectsextet.com. 
Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the Jazz Sessions logo. The Jazz Session is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States license. Details about that are at the bottom of thejazzsession.com. Thanks very much for listening. Please support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.